This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, a plan to build a national cardiovascular centre in Fiji to better tackle the number one killer in the world. And it's all right to advocate for prevention, which is crucial everywhere, but we can't just leave it at prevention. And a group of cruise ship passengers launch a class action suit after they sailed into the path of a cyclone. Not anything like uh, what was expected in terms of a South Pacific cruise. And we ask, amid the hype around deep sea mining, is it actually profitable to Pacific nations? All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, changes to Australia's Pacific Labour Mobility Scheme will allow eligible workers to bring their families over, access free medical care and gain new skills. Australia says the changes are aimed at bolstering its links with the Pacific. As Dubrovka Volodair reports, while the changes have been welcomed by some, others say it doesn't go far enough. From about September this year, there's going to be a big change for many Pacific workers. For the first time, Pacific labourers who have contracts of more than one year can bring their families to Australia. It's exciting news for Simon Mack, a Papua New Guinean labour contractor in Shepparton in Victoria. That's a way forward. It would be much better to bring the families here and um, if they can work and stay here, that'd be good. This change comes as the Australian government is growing the PALM scheme and has pledged more than $370 million for the program. It seeks to fill labour shortages in Australia and help workers develop their skills and send money home. Currently, there are close to 38,000 Pacific labourers in the country as of March this year. Labour mobility has become a really important part of Australia's relationship with the Pacific. Professor Stephen House is a labour mobility expert. It's not surprising really that it's also become an important part of the budget and there are some uh, really significant announcements. But here's the catch. Only those workers who've lived here for a year can bring their loved ones and they need the okay from their employer. Initially, 200 families will join a pilot that will also give them access to Medicare. That means visits to the hospital or doctors who bulk bill will be done free of charge. Simon Mack says it will make a huge difference to workers. It's been you know, stressful for those people who don't have uh, the Medicare and healthcare card and they've been stressed when they get sick or when they get injured or something like that. They, they have to go to the hospital to get treatment and in order for them to get the treatment, they have to pay the active bill, as, as we all know. So I think it's much better if they happen to give them you know, Medicare while they're in Australia. Professor Howes comments the plan. That's something that's uh, very positive for those workers because especially with their families here, you know, it will be quite expensive if they've got to take out private health insurance. Uh, so, yeah, generally there are a range of measures that, are, that will help support more palm workers in Australia and for them to have a better experience while they are here. The workers will also have access to childcare support payments and some tax relief. There are also other measures planned, such as more liaison staff in Australia to support workers and deal with potential problems. 
Additionally, the government is planning to offer 1,000 workers and longer visa skills training. More details on this are still to be announced. Reaction in the Pacific region is mixed. Vanuatu's finance minister, John Salong, welcomes the changes. The minister, Pat Conroy, was here and we specifically addressed some of the concerns of Vanuatu and basically we believe that uh, we're going to work together to address the issues that the PAM scheme needs to continuously improve with. He hopes it will solve some of the issues that have come up in the past. It's about the quality of the workforce we send over there. There's been issues with some people uh, not abiding by the conditions of the visas in Australia. Some people seeking protection visas in Australia when uh, really there's not issue in Vanuatu. So all these elements need to be ironed out. But there has been criticism for some time from people who say the Palm Scheme is taking too many workers from the region. They say this leads to skills shortages in areas such as tourism, hospitality or nursing. Virisila Buandromo from the NGO Urgent Action Fund Asia and Pacific is among them. This particular program, it's like a double-edged sword, right? How can we support small and medium businesses so that this vacuum isn't created and that we end up basically being like, I'm sorry to say, like the sweatshop for Australia? On the streets in Honiara, this is what residents have to say. Before they increase the numbers, I think it'll be good for those people who are staying here to go, uh, because if those people who are already working and they go to Australia, our country won't be able to develop. They're the ones who should be leading organizations here, and when they leave their jobs, our country won't be able to function properly because they will have left. There's a good, good and bad things. Uh, the good things is that if they increase the labour mobility, then everyone can go and work in Australia. They also help our country as well. Okay, the bad thing is that our country needs support from public to work and help our people here in Solomon Island. Australia is also planning to offer 3,000 visas under new law that would open the path to more permanent migration. But when it will start is still unclear, since the opposition earlier blocked it in its current form. That was Dubravka Valadeir with additioning, additional reporting there from Chris and Rita Leong in Honiara. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning. A Fijian cardiologist wants the government to build a national cardiovascular centre in the capital. Dr Vijay Kapadia was involved in setting up the nation's first cardiac unit at Fiji's biggest referral hospital. But he says the facility is held together by sellotape and the grace of God. Speaking with reporter Marion Farr, Dr Kapadia says the WHO declared heart disease as the number one killer in the world in 2002. Fiji had that a long time earlier. So you have the large Fijian Indian community, which has very severe coronary artery disease. And um, then the our 
uh, Itoke or indigenous Fijian uh, community also has a very high incidence of heart disease, but the presentation is somewhat different. You know, one presents with heart attack and chest pain, the latter present more with heart failure and often sudden death. And that community actually has not been fully assessed or investigated for coronary artery disease. And even then, we have such a big problem, four times the heart disease incidence of Australia. And we also have a lot of rheumatic heart disease, one of the highest rheumatic heart disease uh, you know, uh, m percentages in the world. So we have a lot of heart disease, and it's all right to uh, advocate for prevention, and which is crucial everywhere, but we can't just leave it at prevention. It's not a binary that you can't have high-quality uh, or improvised technical support. You, you you should try to do your best to, to do that, and that's what we have achieved in Fiji, in Suva, and with more support and interest from the government and from regional authorities and governments, we could do so much more. You set up a cardiac unit at Fiji's biggest referral hospital many years ago. Mm -hmm. What's the mm -hmm. state of that cardiac unit like now? It tries to do as much as it can, I'm very hopeful that the new government, and they've already shown great signs of increasing interest and support. So I'm very hopeful and very confident that uh, that will just increase and, you know, um, uh, help build this into a much greater, more capable facility. But uh, this is a facility for the country. We haven't charged any money for it. We brought used machines, but we've got great people to support it. We've, we've created local capacity. See, the biggest thing about the foreign involvement has to be to create local capacity. And we have our own doctors and nurses doing all this in Fiji. They're putting pacemakers, they're doing angiograms, they're doing angioplasty, they're capable of doing good ultrasound, treadmills, all that. Now, you might say this is high tech. It is, it is high tech, but why should Fiji be denied? There's so many people who need it, you know? So without it, they, they are greatly, greatly disadvantaged. They die or they become severely disabled, you see? Authorities have to realize how necessary this is. They must have the vision to see the need for these facilities, for this equipment, for this training, for this type of staff. And uh, they need to get involved. They need to nurture it, make sure it runs properly, fully support. At the moment, very, very difficult, very difficult. Sometimes I say that the unit is held together by tape and by the grace of God, you know. That's all very good, but we want some uh, humans to get fully involved in it also. How would a national cardiac centre differ to what exists at this present time? How would it sort of build on, on, on the current facilities that are in Fiji? That's a good question. And, you know, that's going into the unknown, you know, and uh, I don't have all the solutions. But, you know, when we started this facility, we didn't have anything. Really. Nobody knew how to, what a catheter looked like. Nobody knew what a cath lab looked like. We had a very minuscule ultrasound service of the heart used itinerantly on machines that worked sometimes. You know, we had a treadmill facility that was like, you know, uh, offered occasionally. So we had very, very basic stuff. But, you know, I used that Nike advertisement, you know, let's do it, you know. The status quo was unacceptable, so anything was better than that. So from nothing, we've created something quite, quite significant, you know. So, yes, the next step is also going to be a bit in the unknown, you know. How, where will we get the finance from? Where will we get more staff from? But that's all workable. It can be done. The nucleus has to be in the main hospital of the country. The hospital that is the biggest hospital, that sees the largest number of cases, the acute stuff, 
You develop your service. You see, when people have heart attacks, where do they go? They come to the emergency department. You know, you need the emergency department to be connected to a cardiac unit. That's where all the treatment can be given, from the most basic medications to the more invasive treatment, catheters, pacemakers, all that. And a country with four times the heart disease incidence of Australia, I can tell you, you have to go to the emergency department and it's almost, you know, it's a different world, you know. Fiji needs it. There is no doubt about it. Fiji needs a cardiac center, and it would be where the main hospital is, where the medical school is just across the road. And that's where you have the volume. Where you have volume, you have trained staff, you have staff that are practiced, people who can come in the middle of the night to do cases, all that. You gel together, your volume is greater, so you're more experienced. So mm. that's where it has to be. And that's where you mm. build your surgical service. What role do you want Australia and New Zealand to play in supporting this vision moving forward? Australia and New Zealand cannot be just bystanders and say, oh, we'll only come in and feed. They, they do great help in the region, no doubt about it. They've done so much for healthcare in the region. But this is something that I would have expected and I would, I would like Australia and New Zealand to see this is something that is happening independently of any input from any of their gov- any of the governments in the region. Australia and New Zealand have not provided any input, and yet some of the top people from the region have come and worked there. This should become part of their project, that they want to set up a national cardiovascular centre for the country. Fiji does it, but they are supporting it in a very big way with equipment, with facilities, with infrastructure, but most of all, with the training, with staff. So that would be something I would be hopeful that, you know, we can create the exchange of students, the exchange of doctors, the Royal Colleges of Australia and New Zealand, the Physicians' College, you know, to start a a training program there, uh, to get the Fiji School of Medicine become a sister school of some of the medical schools in Australia and New Zealand. We need to take it to a very different level. That is Australian-based Fijian cardiologist Vijay Kapadia speaking there with Marion Farr. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Hope you're having a lovely Tuesday morning it is. A group of cruise ship passengers have launched a class action lawsuit against a major cruise operator after the trip to the Pacific six years ago was hit by a cyclone. The PO's Pacific Aria sailed into the path of Category 5 Cyclone Donna as part of a seven day cruise to Numia and Vanuatu. Because of that decision, lawyers representing the passengers say the cruise was not able to deliver on its promises. Hey there, cruiser. Welcome aboard P&O Cruises Pacific Aria. P&O's Pacific Aria Cruise Line advertises relaxation, style, and the ability to drift away from your troubles on land. Like no place on earth. But it's trouble at sea. More than 1,000 passengers claim they sailed into when they were hit by severe cyclone Donna in May 2017. In videos provided to the lawyers by the cruise goers, waves are seen lapping at the sides of the deck, while heavy seas cause the onboard pool to slosh to and fro. Lawyer Peter Carter says his clients didn't receive the cruise experience advertised and therefore deserve compensation. The claim is for all the passengers on the vessel that departed Brisbane, uh, sailed into a cyclone, that passengers weren't given the opportunity to cancel the cruise, even though there was a cyclone warning and a travel advisory not to 
travel to Vanuatu. The Category 5 Cyclone Donna first formed off Fiji in early May 2017. It then swept eastward toward the northern islands of Vanuatu and also toward the planned path of the P&O cruise liner as it was leaving port in Brisbane. The passengers claim they were left distressed and terrified, as their lawyer, Mr Carter, explains. Huge waves smashing into the side of the ship, water sloshing around uh, the public areas and into some cabins, dining room crockery and glassware being thrown around, staff visibly upset, and uh, it, it was um, naturally uh, not uh, not anything like uh, what was expected in terms of a South Pacific cruise when the cruise line had the opportunity to not to depart and to refund everyone's fare right at the start. On land, the cyclone would damage crops in northern Vanuatu, sending heavy rain and disastrous winds across the islands. In New Caledonia too, the capital, Numia, bunkered down. Yet again, the case alleges, disrupting the cruise passengers' plans as their ship sailed into port. It arrived in Numia um, just as the cyclone was intensifying to Category 5 and the, sh- the city was being battened down. Some passengers left the ship there to fly back to Brisbane or stay in Numia until it was safe to fly back to Brisbane uh, because they didn't want to endure the return journey. Uh, others stayed aboard, um, some got off, walked around, but very little to do. Um, not what, not not the typical um, South Pacific port visit. But the class action suit doesn't aim to seek payouts for any injuries or damage caused during the cruise. Instead, the passengers are suing for disappointment, suffered because they claim what they were promised did not match what they actually experienced. Exactly. It's, it, it is a consumer law case. That's what it is. It's, a, um, it's, it's about the acquisition of services by the consumers from the service supplier and the statutory guarantees that apply in those uh, acquisition cases, in those contracts. Um, now, did any of the passengers have travel insurance or anything else that would um, cover some of this loss, some of that disappointment, um, those damages? No, travel insurance doesn't extend uh, to these losses at all. Travel insurance relates to injuries or medical treatment um, or cancelled journeys. It, it doesn't relate to this type of situation. The class action suit against P&O's parent company, Carnival, has been filed in Brisbane's federal court in Australia. It is seeking damages of around five dollars to $10,000 per passenger and refunds of their tickets. The claim is on behalf of all of the passengers. We will need to get in touch with all of them in due course. We have been in touch with uh, several hundred now, um, but there, there are many others who haven't been in touch and so we will we will be notifying all the passengers in due course. And that was lawyer Peter Carter there from Carter Kapner Lawyers representing those passengers of the cruise ship. And he says it can take 12 to 18 months for the case to be completely resolved. And we did reach out to Carnival. They said that they cannot comment on pending litigation. We need to be prepared for the future. Disasters are inevitable. But losing your home or your life isn't. Cyclone after cyclone, every natural disaster 
gets worse. Learn what to do before, during and after natural disasters in this program aimed at keeping you safe. I'm a Pacific Prepared, Fridays at 8.30am PNG time here on ABC Radio Australia. As always, we've come to that time in Pacific Beat where we look at the news and headlines making the papers and, and websites around the Pacific. And to do uh, all that and go through all those stories, we have Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now let's start in Vanuatu. The police commissioner there is in hot water following an alleged drunken incident. Oh, that doesn't sound too good. No. So the country's uh, top cop was reportedly uh, involved in a highly embarrassing incident at the uh, the casino of all places where all embarrassing incidents probably tend to unfold. <laughs> um, so this is reported by the Vanuatu Daily Post. Uh, who alleged he was drunk and disorderly and verbally abused and made threats against three expatriate tourists, um, yeah, basically basically telling them to go back to where they came from. Um, it's alleged he also made threats to take action against them outside of the premises, meaning security had to accompany the tourists uh, when they left the club. Oh, gosh. Uh, the commissioner, meanwhile, had to be removed uh, and has been banned from re-entering the premises for two years. Yeah, not a good look for anyone, let alone the police commissioner. Um, I, I wonder what the tourists would have thought once they realised that it was the police commissioner making those um, rude, well, alleged rude remarks through them to them. Um, has the commissioner made a comment about what happened? So not that I could find. This is reported on Friday last week, and I haven't seen uh, any updates since then. Um, and the general manager of the venue, interestingly, has refused to make a comment as well. However, sources inside the casino, according to the Post, have confirmed the incident took place and it was all recorded on uh, on security footage. Interesting. And has the commissioner stepped aside or anything? Because not that I could find, yeah. Interesting. Um, yes, we'll see if there's any ramifications for the police commissioner uh, after, yeah, after these allegations have come to light. Um, and now to some sporting news. World Rugby has given Fiji Rugby until January to get its house in order. Is that is that about the um, them losing their voting rights in the council? World, World Rugby Council car? Yeah, that's right. It's it's a bit of a, a bit of a convoluted one. So yeah, the game's governing body has uh, has told Fiji Rugby to shore up their organisation before their position is reviewed again. And this comes after World Rugby made that decision to suspend the FRU from its council membership. Uh, so this is reported by. By the New Zealand Herald, and and that decision to suspend it, as you said, was made following a Fiji government intervention into its operations, uh, and that revealed that uh, Fiji Rugby's national management body was actually operating illegally. Um, because the registration of the FRU Charitable Trust was uh, apparently not in order. Mm-hmm. So they've got till January to fix that. And uh, in the meantime, I understand World Rugby has uh, set up a, a bit of a road roadmap to stabilise it in the meantime. Okay, yes. I, I mean, uh, there have been a lot of changes um, at FRU with the you know restructure, new people in, old people gone. Um, I wonder if that'll you know also lead to some reforms that World Rugby uh, will be happier about. But um, do we know if this will affect Fiji and its game at all? Will they be penalised on the field because of losing this position with the World Rugby Council? Yeah, no, they won't, uh, which is good news. So the world body uh, confirmed that despite the uh, the suspension uh, of all fee, uh, sorry, uh, d- despite this, uh, they've confirmed that um, the suspension won't apply to Fiji's national teams and they'll still participate uh, in competitions sanctioned by it. Uh, that includes the World Rugby Seven Series, the Olympic Games uh, and the Rugby World Cup. 
Um, but just on what you were saying before, interestingly, it's, uh, former FRU president Frank Bainimarama has actually claimed on uh, FBC Sports that uh, nothing was wrong with the FRU during his tenure and mm. uh, it's the current government's fault for getting involved and that's spooked, basically spooked um, uh, World Rugby into th- to take this action because it's, uh, they don't like the idea of government intervention. Oh, very interesting claims by Mr. Bainimarama Marama there. I'm sure others would have um, something else to say about it. Um, yes, but I guess it is very convenient that this did happen very soon after that restructure, which did lose Mr. Bainimarama his spot as president of FRU. Um, yes, so, you know, but as we say, you know, things happen at the same time. It doesn't necessarily mean causation. So uh, I'm sure other people have other other reasons why uh, th- th- think there are other reasons why um, World Rugby made that decision. Um, let's stay with Fiji Rugby, Kyle. A historic match between Fiji and the All, ba- the All Blacks could be scheduled for 2024. Why is it historic and um, why is it happening in 2024? Yeah, so New Zealand Rugby CEO Mark Robinson has revealed that discussions are underway to hold a test match between the two sides in Fiji. And, uh, and that would mark the first ever sanctioned test between the two countries uh, on Fijian soil. Oh, right. So that doesn't include a New Zealand under-25s team, which apparently played there in the 70s and 80s because that they were not considered full internationals at that time. And that's unsanctioned, I guess. Is that what sanctioned means? Yeah, I guess I guess so. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure how those games turned out, but you know, given how competitive the Endurer is these days in the Super Rugby, uh, an internationals test uh, in, in Fiji, I reckon it'd make for a pretty competitive match. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that one. Um, and do we know when next year would it be held? Should people start marking their calendars already? <laughs> so uh, according to Robinson, uh, the All Blacks will host England for two tests in July and Fiji for one more in New Zealand. So it would have to take place after that. It would be sort of a, a reciprocal match or a rematch with Fiji, I guess. Um, there is a, is a slight roadblock to that fixture, though, and that is that it will have to be played outside that July window and, uh, and Fiji's European-based players might be unavailable. Oh, okay. Well, that that would be a shame. Um, but yeah, it will be interesting to see when what date they do land on and um, what, what comes of that match. Um, very exciting stuff and exciting stuff for, I guess, Fiji Rugby. I mean, when these challenges get a, um, get presented, like losing your spot on the World Rugby Council, I guess it presents some new opportunities as well. Um, isn't it, Carl? So, I mean, listeners, if you're listening in Fiji or if you are a fan of Fijian rugby, do get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. What what reforms do you want to see with the government's, um, you know, body, the, the management of Fiji rugby? What changes do you want to see put in place? Um, we can't promise they will be put in place, but it will be great to hear hear your thoughts. And uh, perhaps there will be some some years from Fiji Rugby also listening in, taking some notes. Um, get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. Uh, Carl, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. The power of music has become a vital way to strengthen the friendship between Australia and Timor-Leste in one small community. A choir from remote Timor-Leste has just made its first visit to Australia, touring the Bega Valley in New South Wales as part of an ongoing choir exchange. Vanessa Milton with this report. It's a 20-year friendship born from decades of struggle. In the wake of Timor-Leste's painful path to independence, the new nation forged a network of grassroots connections with towns across Australia. For the Bega Valley in New South Wales, what began as a relationship offering practical support with infrastructure and education 
has now blossomed into a two-way cultural exchange. David Croden is the cultural coordinator for the Bega Valley Advocates for Timor-Leste. Singing is such an integral part of their culture. They love singing and they sing really joyously. We ended up doing a choir exchange. In 2019, a choir from the Bega Valley travelled to perform in Timor-Leste. Now the Korulian Timor Choir has come to visit Australia. For the choir's conductor, Aju Amaral, it's a rare chance to perform internationally with singers from two remote regions in Timor-Leste. We come to promote our cultures to our neighbours like Australia and it's really great opportunity for us. The Timorese singers are performing with local choirs, including the Australian First Nations choir, Jinama Yiliga. While Bungie Ewan woman and singer Michelle Davison says the groups have bonded over the healing power of music. It's a really powerful thing, how spiritually uplifting it, it, it is. It has been for myself and my personal journey in life. It's a sentiment echoed by the Korulian Timor Choir's director, Ego Lemos. He lived through Timor-Leste's brutal fight for independence that saw one quarter of the population killed. Two decades later, he's using music to find peace. My experience during Indonesian occupation 24 years is very painful, but I feel grateful that uh, I'm still survive. Now we're living in the free country. Music is bringing people alive again, yeah. Australian First Nations singer Michelle Davidson says the experience has been enriching. Just learning the language, listening to how they sound. I like to just look and see how much joy other people get out of it. harmonies there and before that you heard Michelle Davison an Australian First Nations choir singer and she was ending that report by Vanessa Milton with additional recordings by David Gallen. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning right here on ABC Radio Australia. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. The Metals Company is one of the biggest players in deep-sea mining in the Pacific. Backed by Nauru, the company appeared to be on the fast track towards getting permission from the UN Seabed Authority to begin deep-sea mining in the region. But recent moves by a number of key investors to break away from the company has cast doubt on its future plans. Joining us now from Canada is Catherine Cummins, the deep-sea mining campaigner at Mining Watch. Good morning to you, Catherine. 
Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now, you have and, and you know, deep sea mining um, campaigners have been pushing for companies to divest in deep sea mining. And that includes Maersk, which actually did put um, pull out its money from um, the metals company very recently. Why do you believe that companies like Maersk, this big shipping company, shouldn't put their money towards uh, this this activity? Yeah, so Mining Watch Canada has been working very closely with an Australian-based organization called the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, and I'm on the management committee there, and we have been targeting Maersk um, collectively to um, pull out. And we have really pointed to the very large financial risks that are involved, but also the environmental impacts and the human rights impacts for people in the Pacific who are going to feel the brunt of this industry if it goes ahead. So we have appealed to all of these things with Maersk, and Maersk has now pulled out. And, you know, Maersk is not the only one. Um, Storebrand, which is uh, another investor, had pulled out of the metals company before. And there's also a lot of other industries that are saying they're not going to source metals from the deep seabed. So what we call downstream consumers, such as financial in- or such as um, uh, um the auto industry, so mm. companies such as BMW and Volkswagen and Volvo have pulled out or have at least said that they won't source metals from the deep sea. And financial institutions have also come on board and said that they will not invest in the deep sea mining industry. So it's, you know, even on the, on the industry side, there's quite a lot of concern about this, this proposed new Type of mining. Uh, and Catherine, can you talk us through what concerns there are? Because you mentioned that when you were trying to lobby some of these companies, that it was, wasn't just environmental and human rights issues um, that you brought up, but also the financial issues. Um, what, what, what are some of those issues that you laid out to the companies that could have prompted them to pull out their money? Yeah, so this is a highly experimental new industry that's trying to come on board in the mining sector. And if you think about it, everything is experimental about this. So all of the technology that has to be developed to mine the deep sea bed is all newly being developed and has barely been tested. Um, The operating environment itself, the deep sea bed, thousands of kilometers underwater, is a very difficult place to operate and even things like the regulatory realities, the regulatory regimes haven't been put in place, the payment regimes to countries like how are taxes and royalties going to be um, run is all up in the air. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk involved for any companies trying to get involved. And and what we actually see is that there's a lot of hype around this. Um, so you see companies like the metals company essentially mining the markets. They don't. The metals company has no products that they're selling at all at the moment. It's all projecting future profits, and, and so it's a lot of hype. And some of the loudest and most desperate companies, like the metals company, are making the most noise about trying to persuade investors to come on board. Um, but we see that a lot of the players with deeper pockets are either pulling out um, or they're making a lot less noise and they've got a wait-and-see attitude. Mm. And it's not just Maersk, right? So Lockheed Martin, which is a huge player that was invested um, through something called UK Seabed Resources, has also recently divested to a Norwegian company and pulled out. 
Mm. I, I mean, you, you you said that it was a risky, I guess, business venture. But I guess these these big businesses would be used to putting their money behind, you know, new investments, new technologies, um, things like this. Um, do you think they're concerned about the environment and some of these human rights um, concerns that you've outlined as well? Um, could that have had something to play with their decision to pull out their money? I think generally companies are going to look at a return on investment. And so I think some, to some extent that what we're seeing, the pullouts that we're seeing are really just based on looking at the, the risks to, to financial investments. Mm. But, you know, at the same time, there is a real tide at the moment. There's a real wave of countries and financial institutions, downstream consumers like the auto industry and the electronics industry that are starting to really say, hang on a minute, this is, this is possibly the worst idea that we've come up with as a way to gain metals. Um, you know, we, we now have 14 countries that are calling for either a moratorium or an outright ban or what they call a precautionary pause. And these include Pacific Island states like Fiji, Palau, Samoa, New Zealand, but also European countries like France, Germany, Spain, and Latin American countries like Costa Rica, Ecuador, and Chile, and there's more countries coming on all the time. So I think, I think the, the growing awareness of the actual environmental risks, the possibility of creating huge dead zones in the Pacific Ocean, and the impacts up the water column all the way to what we call, you know, the financial um, the commercial, the commercial fishing industry, um, which would impact the lives of so many Pacific Island peoples and coastal peoples around the world, these 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 realities are starting to hit home. So I think it's also partly that. Mm. Now, Catherine, I mean, when when you, you talked about the hype around the deep sea mining industry, and I, I remember when this industry first launched, they were talking about how the the metals that they'd mine from the deep, the bottom of the sea, which they claim they can do safely and without with little environmental impact, they said these same metals will be used in things like electric vehicles, um, things like new technologies to combat uh, climate change or to reduce our uh, dependence on fossil fuels, and they. They said that's why these metals were needed to really, um, you know, jumpstart our, our push into a renewable future. Do you think that claim still holds holds true or holds any water? Well, it still is certainly part of the story that's being told. But I mean, there's a lot of a lot of other ways of looking at this. For example, there have been quite a few studies done now to say, well, we actually have enough metals on land for terrestrial mining, traditional mining. The, um, that, that means that we don't really need to go and, and mine the deep sea bed. It's not like we have to mine the deep sea bed to get the metals that we need. Um, there's also no reason to assume that if we mine the deep sea bed and caused a whole new area of, of mining impact and destruction, that the mining on land would stop. It's mine, miners don't go out to mine for the energy transition. They mine for profits, and so as long as they can make profits, they'll keep mining. I think. Um, the other the other argument that's that we're really starting to look at more and more is that you can't really destroy the planet to save the planet, right? If you're going to create a huge dead zone in the Pacific Ocean, because this mining has a very, very wide footprint, 
It has both a wide footprint because the resource, these polymetallic nodules, are spread out over a very, very wide region. It's as big as, well, for Canadians, if I was speaking to Canadians, I'd say <laughs> British Columbia and the Yukon combined, but it's basically the, 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 the length of the United States, but mm. in the Pacific Ocean between Hawaii and Mexico. And so they have to mine a very wide area, plus they're now increasingly realizing that the plumes, the sediment plumes that are going to be kicked up by this mining are going to spread very, very far. So there's a great little study that's been done recently, um, and a, there's a video called Blue Peril, which, which really shows this based on scientific literature, you know, that the, that the spread of the plumes from a small mining area in the middle of this Pacific area would actually spread to the territorial waters of Kiribati and Hawaii within, oh, wow. within a very short amount of time. So the footprint is going to be huge. And, you know, this is a very fragile ecosystem. It's a very slow-to-evolve ecosystem. The, the species that are down there grow, evolve very slowly. They mature very slowly. They reproduce very slowly. And they're very used to stability. Unlike species on Earth that are more adaptable, this is not the case there. And if you are comparing mining on land to mining in the deep sea, there's so many reasons why mining on land makes more sense, as destructive and as harmful as we all know that to be. And, you know, one reason is just that we actually have a long history and we know better how to do it. It's not experimental. We're not experimenting with our deep sea bed when we experiment, you know, when we do mining on land. And and also, we can see what's going on. We have observers. We can actually, you know, see if something goes yeah. wrong and, and call, 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 you know, call in the authorities. That's going to be so much more difficult in the deep sea bed and on and on, right? Even remediation is going to be much easier on land than it would be. If something goes wrong, which inevitably it will, it's, it's impossible to, to remedy that kind of harm mm-hmm. if it's in the deep sea bed. So... Lots of reasons why, as you know, as terrible as mining on land is, and as much as we need to reduce our our mining overall, the last thing we need to do at this point in our human evolution, and with the state of the planet as it is, is to is to start destroying a whole new ecosystem. If you are just tuning into Pacific Beat, we're joined by Catherine Cummins. We're talking about, uh, well, Catherine, you're from Mining Watch Canada, and we are talking about um, these de-investments de- 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 from uh, the my- metals company, that is that deep sea mining company. Um, now, we're seeing this money being pulled out by deep sea mining companies and big companies like Maersk and uh, Lockheed Martin pulling out their money. Does this mean that it's the Pacific countries who've opened their, their maritime waters to deep sea mining might also face some difficulties in getting, getting back some, um, some finances, some money from, from their investments um, into deep sea mining? Well, I started out saying that we don't have much of a track record for this industry. And unfortunately, the, the little bit of track record we do have is not a good one. So Papua New Guinea was actually the first um, state on earth to give a permit for the exploitation of hydrothermal vents, which is one of the ecosystems being targeted within Papua New Guinea's own territorial waters. So they can directly give that permit. And the company was another Canadian company called Nautilus, actually a forerunner of Deep Green, which then became the metals company. And Nautilus went bankrupt. And part of that was the great opposition by coastal communities in Papua New Guinea and supported through international organizations 
Nautilus went bankrupt and left the Papua New Guinea government with a debt of about $125 million, mm. which was a huge part of their budget. So the, you know, the history that we do have with this industry, because it's still so nascent, because it's experimental, because it's uh, you know, not a robust industry, is that it's as likely as not that players like Nautilus and like the metals company will just go bankrupt or will be sold out to others, and there will be very little control over the impacts of, of that happening for the Pacific Island countries that partner with these companies. Okay, well, that, um, we, we're almost out of time, Catherine, but it, I just wanted to ask you, is that your expectation, what we'll see with the metals company, this, um, this latest company in the Pacific? Do you think they'll go bankrupt? Are you calling it? Yeah, I think so. I think that, well, I don't think they're going to necessarily go bankrupt. I think they're going to, uh, so Jared Barron, the guy who is the CEO mm -hmm. of the metals company, he used to be with Nautilus. He used to be invested in Nautilus, and he managed to pull his investment out and made a tidy sum before Nautilus went bankrupt. And then he was in deep green, now he's in the metals company. I expect he will hightail it before the metals company actually goes under and more likely it will be bought up by another company probably at a you know at a at a very low rate because when they when their shares went on the market they were $12 and they're under a dollar now and they've been uh, under a dollar for quite a long time so it's it's been a losing proposition for anyone who invested in that company and that's the risk right and that's fine to me if investors take that risk i'm very concerned when pacific island countries or, or, or the environment has to bear the risk of this very sort of experimental new industry. Catherine, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Oh, thank you. And that was uh, Catherine Cummins from the uh, well. She's from Mining Watch Canada. She is a deep seabed mining campaigner. And she was talking to us about that decision from very many companies to divest from deep sea mining themselves. And with that, we come almost to the end of Pacific Beat for your Tuesday morning. Recapping the top of today's show, show we explored changes to Australia's Pacific Labour Mobility Scheme, which will allow workers to bring their families and access free health care. That's a way forward. It would be much better to bring the families here and um, if they can work and stay here, that'd be good. So I think it's much better if they happen to give them, you know, Medicare while they're in Australia. And if you want to catch up on that story or any other stories that we've had this morning or any other morning on Pacific Beach, you can head to our ABC Pacific website. Just type that into your search browser and that should bring you to us. I'll be back same time, same place tomorrow morning, bringing you more stories from the Pacific. Hope to join you then. Until then, have a lovely day.